Good morning, everyone. And what a privilege it is to be sharing with you this morning from the word of our Lord and Saviour. And I pray that my words will be his words. And a great warm welcome to everyone who's live streaming with us this morning as well. I remember when I was growing up in Africa, my father and I used to go on game trail walks where we used to track the animals through the bush. Felt like, uh, you know, some of the movie stars you get to see in the bush and, you know, it was great fun. We used to take moulds of the animals' uh, footprints using plaster of Paris. And uh, while we were waiting for these moulds to harden, he would teach me about which side of the tree the moss would grow on, how to tell the difference between weather patterns, what to watch out for on the changes, and why it was important not to be stuck out in the bush after dark, especially at my young age. We would then continue to track until we found a water hole and we would then lie down in an area and wait. Mm. Sometimes this could be for hours mm. until the animals returned to the water hole where we would get a clear view and my father more, would more often than not take a photograph. One, to record it as a memory at that time, but also because he uses it for his reference for his drawings that he, that he loves doing. Most of the time it would be a springbok, which is a little deer, Sometimes a warthog. Sometimes, if we were lucky, it was an eland, which is a gigantic antelope, huge. Sometimes it would be elephants. Sometimes rhinos. And if we were lucky enough, or scary enough, it would be a few lions. Hmm. It was and continues to be one of my, fa- my father's favourite things to do in spotting wildlife. Although now, because we're here, it's mainly kept to just being birds. Hmm. Uh, we're at, I was at his place last week for Mother's Day and he, you know, he asked me to stop and wait and he said, look, and he pointed up to the birds and he goes, see those? He mentioned the species, I've already forgotten. He knows exactly what they are, but he loves doing it. Mm. It's one of the fondest memories I have with him, just spending time together and looking up to my father as we waited. Mm. And I wonder how much time we spend in our lives waiting, waiting in traffic, for medical appointments, for holidays, or waiting for a friend to turn up for coffee. For a Christian, our whole life, you could say, is an extended period of waiting as we wait for our Saviour to return. As it says in Hebrews 9, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Last week we heard from Raph on the meaning of salvation, with Isaiah painting a picture of salvation and what we're saved from, judgment and destruction from the wrath of God, and what we are saved for, a glorious new creation and an eternity with Christ. This week we're continuing on in our series on Isaiah, And we will be looking this morning at the people of that salvation. Who is it that is going to be taking part of that glorious new creation? And the answer, those who wait. Isaiah 26 starts and ends with snapshots portraying different time periods, where the time perspective shifts between past, present and future. The middle of the chapter homes in on one of those time periods. At the beginning of the chapter, we have the future, the far-off horizon, 
one of salvation, where Judah represents the church and God's new covenant, as it says in Hebrew 8 and Romans 3, which extends the covenant to include all people, not just Israelites or those of Judah, but to those who believe. And we can see the picture of this far-off horizon in verse 1 in the opening section of the chapter where it says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. Dev, could you bring it up? Thank you. So uh, I'm quite a history buff, uh, for those who don't know, um, and medieval history is one of my favourite periods in history. Um, the castles, the knights, all the typical guy stuff. But um, now this isn't the city of salvation, but it's something I want to share with you all because this is the city, uh, it's, the, it's the Dover Castle down in southeast uh, of England. And you can see there there's a few curtain walls, there's some ramparts, which is on top of the walls. There's also some bulwarks, which is the raised areas of grass. And you can see there that there's quite a level of protection there. And if there are times to retreat, you can actually go back to the very middle of that castle there, which is called the keep, and that's where they could all go to when they needed safety. So I'm just going to keep that there as we're talking through and as I read through. I just wanted you to picture this is an earthly castle. It, it, it has its failings. You know, uh, people invaded castles for many hundreds of years. They did fail, but this is of human hands. But as we read through, just picture yourself, just picture what you can around the city of salvation. So please just keep that in mind as we go through. So if an, if an enemy was to invade a country, having open landscapes or open country would allow easy access for the enemy to advance. But having these walled cities puts checks on that advance. And as the enemies need to decide whether they want to actually conquer the city or whether they want to avoid it, if they could. Hmm. The song of a city, however, as what we're reading through in Isaiah, belongs just as much as us as it does to the people of Judah. And being blessed with the New Testament, we can look at it with a deeper understanding than the people of Judah as they would not have been as aware because they didn't have the New Testament with them. We were once unguarded from a spiritual evil and we spent our days in constant fear. But the Lord has found for us a city of defence, a castle of refuge. We have a citizenship in the new Jerusalem and within the strong city we can live securely. The person that has come into God's family through Jesus' sacrifice has gone into a place of perfect safety where they may live forever without fear. We are no longer hunted by demons and trodden down by dark despairs, but we have a strong city which terrifies the enemy and one that we can take refuge in. Our songs are the songs of people who in the truest sense have an end of fear by accepting God's provision against distress. We can see how the song goes on to expand upon the city's strength. God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. We're dumbly defended. As you can see there in the picture there, the walls are strong and high. They keep out the invader, whether they attack by scaling ladders or battering rams. Outside the wall on the other side of the moat lies what's called the ramparts or bulwarks, the earthwork where in times of peace... The citizens can delight in walks 
and in times of war, they act as additional defences, as obstacles. The Lord our God has set ring upon ring, defence upon defence, around his people. All the powers of divine intervention and grace protects the saints. The Lord keeps his people doubly defended by walls and ramparts, and he speaks of a double peace. God does nothing by halves, but everything by doubles. His salvation is decreed and appointed, and this has made the basis for the eternal peace of all of his chosen. The song, however, does not end with verses concerning the city, but it directs us within its walls. Open the gates that the righteous nations may enter, the nation that keeps faith. Entrance into this grace in which we stand is a choice. The gracious joy of true godliness is in being able to enter into it. If the city of God were shut against us with all of its defences, would it not be a time to despair? If today you and I, we as a collective, were stood outside the city of God, unable to enter, of what value would her walls and her ramparts be to us then? that there should be Christ and that we should be Christless, that there should be judgment and we should remain unforgiven, that there should be a Father's love and that we should be separated, that there should be a heaven and that we should be cast into hell. There's a scary thought. Our citizenship is now in heaven. Nothing is barred against us, for the Son of David has set before us an open door. And no one man can shut it. Let us not neglect our opportunities. Let it not be said that we should not enter in because of unbelief. Let it be ours to sing of because of salvation, because we can enjoy it in the fullest. At the end of the chapter, we can see another image taken from verse 19 and is described as possibly the most graphic example in the whole of the Old Testament of the expectation of the resurrection, of the physical resurrection of the body. We believe in the physical resurrection of the body. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead physically and because through the Bible we're encouraged to anticipate our own physical resurrection in the last days. And in verse 19 we read, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your Jew is like the morning, uh, is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So bracketing this chapter are two images of a time far off in Isaiah's mind. Of salvation, of the glorious city, of the nation who keeps faith streaming into those open gates. The resurrection of the body, physically raised believers, and death defeated. And of course, because Isaiah's vision is dominated by Emmanuel, God with us in chapter 7, and unto us a child is born, whose name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. So we are right to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say that this picture of salvation is fulfilled in him. Crucified, buried, and raised again from the dead and in his returning. As I started with, 
But between the opening and closing brackets, there is another time period in which the rest of the chapter focuses in on. And these are found in verses 3 and 4. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Here are the people who wait, trusting and kept in perfect peace, minds secured in trusting the everlasting God, who is an everlasting rock. And if we look at the back end of the chapter, in verses 20 and 21, Go, my people, into your rooms, and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while, until his wrath has passed by. Here are the people of God, who have taken shelter in God, trusting in him on the day of judgment, shutting themselves in like Noah as he entered the ark of salvation, shutting themselves in like the people of Israel on the night of the Passover, shutting the door behind them. Let us take shelter in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection from the destruction of God's final judgment. Here are the people who wait. Reading through these verses, it certainly makes you want to be part of that city of salvation whose walls and ramparts are built and constructed from salvation. And trust in the Lord with all your heart. Enter into the safe place of Jesus' death and resurrection where you will be sheltered from God's judgment and wrath. That paints the picture of those who wait. What we're going to be focusing in on is in that middle of the chapter we're given four pictures or four images which not only describes the people who wait, but they also describe the experience of them waiting. So what does Christian waiting look like? Our citizenship is in heaven and we wait for a saviour, but what does it actually look like? Is it like being stuck in traffic on Yan Yin Road or Plenty Road or even the Ring Road? <laughs> waiting for that traffic to move and you can actually turn the car back on or wait for the engine to actually kick in and actually use some power. Or RAF, is it like waiting for the apple crumble to be ready from the oven, being able to smell the crisp apple mixed with fragrant spices, cooking crust? It was like when my wife was baking yesterday, chocolate oat cookies, and they had three kids with peering eyes waiting and staring into the oven as my wife would say, a fourth child, which I was waiting there right next to them, <laughs> waiting for the cookies to be ready. And you get that lovely aroma. Or is it waiting like for the, no- for the latest notification from Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, or whatever else they've come up with these days? Waiting for the new post, your new follower, or what new share has been made. What does it actually look like? Reading through the chapter, there's four images that are painted of waiting that I think describe the experience of trusting in the Lord and describe what Christian waiting looks like. The first image that we get is of yearning and longing. And we read this in verses 7 and 9. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, Walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgment comes upon the earth, 
the people of the world learn righteousness. You will see that there are four verbs of waiting in these verses. In verse 8, we wait. And again in verse 8, we desire. And in in verse 9, my soul yearns and my spirit longs for. The language moves from the first uh, for the first person plural, we, to the first person singular, I. So what marks God's people as a corporate body is true for each and every single one of us individually. Reading through the passages, there is an increasing intensity in the verbs. We move from corporate waiting and desiring to individual yearning and longing. Part of my role at work is travelling into regional Victoria, where some of our farms are located. Mm. Depending on the workload or the time required up there, mm. I might have to stay a night or two. While staying at the motel, the night can be quite lonely. Mm. I miss my children and I miss my wife. I desire to be in their presence and to spend time with them. And as I start, and as if I, after I finish the day or days, and I start the travel home, after having been away for a couple of days, the longing and the desiring increases the closer I get to home. I can't wait to be home with them. I can't wait to give them a cuddle, a kiss, and find out how their day's been. And depending on how their day's been is how quickly my wife hands me their children and hear how she's been through the day. But it's fantastic and it's, and it's, and it's an awesome picture to paint is, and that's only from where, from my, from where I stand today. But it's how much should we be yearning and asking for the Lord and Saviour. And we see that in Isaiah where it's the man and woman of God and they know that so much is around the corner in the city of salvation. And like them, we wait, we desire. Our soul yearns, our spirits longs. We read in Psalm 27, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And in Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And in Jeremiah 29, You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart. And back in Isaiah 26 and verse 8, we read, Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. doesn't mean that waiting is sitting around, twiddling your thumbs and doing nothing. You can hear that. It says, in walking the way of your laws, it's an active, it's an active action. It's not passive. In following Jesus' commandments, we wait for our Lord. So the man or woman who will enter into the city in the far future is the man or woman of God's word in the middle chapter, at the middle of the chapter. His name, his remembrance are the desires of our souls. What he's revealed about himself and in through the person of Jesus Christ, that's the desire of my soul. Everything he has taught me about himself, that's what I long for. That's what I wait for. I desire, I yearn, and I long for. Authentic Christianity is always future-focused. Never trust a person who presents that you have everything right now because the best is yet to come. 
If we truly are a people of God, we should long for the day when he he returns and transforms our lowly body to be like his heavenly body as the earth gives birth to the dead. Will it not be glorious as our mortal bodies with all their sin, their failing, their suffering, their weaknesses and frailty are raised and all that is taken away? The second image... Thanks, Dave. <laughs> we keep chasing each other. Thanks for that. The second image that is painted for us is one of frustrated waiting, which you can see in verses 10 and 11. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal of your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. There will be an unease and dissatisfaction and a frustration. And the frustration comes because by God's grace, people who walk contrary to God's will receive many mercies from God. He causes his sun to shine on them and his rain to fall on them. He prospers them and places into their hands plenty. They escape many strokes of God's judgment, while others who are less wicked than than themselves have been cut off. People who follow God have seen things that no one else is able to perceive, and that was particularly true for Isaiah. He preached to a blinded people, and therefore those who wait, like those with eyes living in a line to the blind. And why is it that our non-Christian friends and culture stumble around like a blind man in the dark, bumping into tables and chairs, stubbing their toes. They can't see what's obvious to our eyes. Sorry, to those with eyes. Why are they like that? Frustrated waiting. If favour is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. They are like, like a stubborn mule who just won't learn. And notice the willful rejection. It's not that God's favour is hidden or that God's revelation is obscure. In verse 11, God has acted and lifted his hand up in action. And that always describes the powerful of action of God, that his hands are lifted, that God has acted, that those who have stayed or have strayed and walked in contrary to God's commandment have benefited from God's goodness and kindness as they have walked in the land of the righteousness. But they will not see it and they will not learn from it, even though... They've heard the message. They're willfully blind to it. And so frustration is a mark of God's people. It must have been a particular frustration for Isaiah because God had acted so manifestly in the kingdom of David and Solomon, not least through the exodus of when Israel left Egypt. He'd acted so clearly and Isaiah was sent to proclaim this message. But they will not see, they will not learn Their eyes are blind and so frustrated waiting. So much of the Western culture, which includes Australia, is permeated with all sorts of Christian ideology and things that we've benefited from. Things that have been picked up from the Christian faith that our world loves. And yet, in seeking to evict Christ, don't they see that they are trying to evict the very thing that they want? Where does 
the idea of human rights and human freedom come from? Where does human value come from? The idea that all men and women are equal in the sight of God and that they should be treated fairly, each and every single one of them. You certainly don't find it in fully-fledged atheistic communities or societies. And in certain countries, you don't even find human rights there. So where does the idea of human justice and rights come from? And yet the wicked want to throw the very, overthrow the very source of all things that they have benefited from so much. And therefore, to you and I, as we see that in our culture, frustrated waiting. Frustrated waiting as a community as we wait surrounded by a pagan world. But of course, trusting supremely in the public truth of the gospel, which is what Isaiah was proclaiming. How God will be at length will be too hard for them, for when he judges, he will overcome. They will not see, but they shall see, shall be made to see whether they want to or not, that God is angry with them. Atheists, scorners and the secure will shortly feel what now they will not believe, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They will not see the evil of sin, and particularly the sin of hating and persecuting the people of God, but they shall see by the tokens of God's displeasure against them for it, and the deliverances in which God will plead his people's cause. That which is done against him, he takes as against himself, or his people, he takes against himself, and he will reckon it accordingly. It's not that God has acted quietly. His hand is lifted up in the public life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not illogical thing to believe in Jesus. It's reasonable, rational, and bears close investigation, and yet all around us, eyes will not see it. So frustrated waiting. The third image of waiting that we are shown is that we're dependent on God and that he is active. In verses 12 to 15, Isaiah reflects on what God has done for his people, both in mercy and in judgment, and looks forward to what he had hoped God will do for them. And his reflections are mixed. When he looks back on the state of the church, he finds that God has been gracious to his people and has done great things for them. And in verse 12, we read, Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. So whatever good work is done by us, it's owing to the good work done by the grace of God. Because it's not of us, but it's working through us. It's God working through us, as it says in Philippians 2. And notice what God's done in verse 15, that he's enlarged the nations, that it's a growing nation, and it is the glory of God that it is so. The increase of the church is to be rejoiced because it's the increase of those that make it their business to glorify God in this world. Not only in the day of judges, but afterwards, God frequently sold the Israelites into the hands of their enemies, or rather, by their sins, they sold themselves. When they'd been careless in the service of God, God let their enemies have rule over them that they might know the difference between his service and the service of the kingdoms of other countries. It may be understood as a confession of sin. They're serving other gods and subjecting themselves to the superstitious laws and customs of their neighbours by which other lords had dominion over them besides God. 
But now they promise that it shall be no more. They promise that in your name, Lord, alone do we honour. The same can be said for us. Other lords besides God have had dominion over us. Every lust and every other desire, every worldly desire, has been our Lord at one point in time. And we have been led captive by it. And it's been long enough and too long that we have wronged both God and ourselves. The Israelites' promise should be our promise, that we will make mention of God's name only and by him only that we keep close to God and due to our duty and never desert it. The benefit we often have by undergoing trials and tribulations is that we they bring us closer to God and show us our dependence on him. As we pray to him and pray frequently, we build our relationship with him. The final picture is one of human failure and God's success. In verses 16 and 19, we see that Isaiah is talking around that they're coming in distress, that God disciplined them and that they could barely whisper a prayer, that a pregnant woman was about to give birth And as she's about to give birth, they writhe and cry out in pain. But they gave birth to wind. And that they have not been able to bring salvation to the earth. And people of the world have not come to life. And in there, Isaiah complains that their struggles for their own liberty and freedom has been dangerous and painful. And that they had not been successful. Their prayers have been quickened by the sharpness of their pain and had become as strong and intense as a lady in labour. It was a comfort and satisfaction to them that in their distress that God had his eye upon them, that all their miseries were in his sight. He was no stranger to their pangs or to their prayers. Lord, all my desires before you and my groaning is not hidden from you in Psalm 38. Not all is bad news, though. Isaiah's prospects and hopes are pleasant. What peace the church has or hopes for is God's ruling. For everlasting peace from verse uh, verse 12. Two things that Isaiah sees helps to comfort us as the church here this morning. The ruination of God's enemies, that they're now dead in verse 14. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. Because they are sentenced to this final ruin in carrying out that sentence, God himself has visited them his wrath as a righteous judge and has cut off both the men themselves and the remembrance of them. They and their names are buried together in the dust. He has made all their memories perish. They are either forgotten or mentioned with loathing. And the second bit of hope was at the resurrection of the church. And again from verse 19, we read around the dead rising, not through our works or not because of us, but because of the Lord himself. And on that last day, he summons the dead from the earth. Then we'll see that it was worth it. Here would be one person that saw witness, that saw your witness and made note of it. He is somebody who heard your child speak in a class around Jesus. He is someone who heard you speak or who, or here is someone next to you that you reached out to and cared for. In the city of salvation, there will be people that God has touched through your labor, through your work. And you didn't even know about it. But like the Israelites and ourselves, 
we fail in our humanity, that if we try and do it in our own works, it's not possible. It's not possible to bring salvation. We can't save someone from from our sin and, and paying that that debt. We can't pay, but God can. And he did that through his son, Jesus. So to recap, looking throughout the passage, we've been showing four pictures or four images of what Christian waiting looks like. Image one, which is one of yearning, longing, desiring and seeking God. Image two is frustrated, waiting at the blindness of the world and wondering when God's judgment will come. The third image is one of dependent activism, where God and Jesus have done all of our works. And the fourth one is of human frailty and God's success. So what does it mean for all of us here at Monty this morning? How do these images apply to us and what can we learn or what can we do? So to do that, I've got eight things that we can do while we wait on God. First one is acknowledge God's sovereign control of all things. In order to become good at waiting, we first need to acknowledge that God is sovereign and nothing that we are presently experiencing is outside of his his eternal decree and his direct oversight. And as the wise king in Ecclesiastes says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked and the day of prosperity be joyful and the day of adversity consider. God has made this one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So even in our present predicament, it's of the Lord and we cannot straighten what God has made crooked. As much as we want to fix the problem, we're first to wait upon the Lord by acknowledging his Sovereign purpose in it. If it were up to us, we'd make an even bigger mess. Mm. However, God will fix things in a much better way than we can. Sometimes the most difficult thing for us to do is stop, do nothing, and wait upon the Lord. Second one is to come to terms with dependence on, on, on God. Connected to the doctrine of God's sovereignty is our complete dependence upon him for all things. It's natural for us to want to be individuals. It's natural for us to want freedom and independence. To do whatever we want to do, when, where and how we want to do it. But the truth is we're all dependent on God for even our next heartbeat. As Job rightly rightly confessed, it's the Lord who gives and takes away. And as the Apostle Paul expressed in Romans 11, from God are all things. While it's true that All of God's creation belongs to God and is dependent upon him. It is also true that those who have been adopted in Christ have a special belonging and dependence upon God as a father as we come into his family. You are not your own for you are bought with a price in 1 Corinthians. Our response to this reality should be to turn to the Lord in faith and wait upon him. We are needy creatures. We should not try and fix things ourselves but come to terms with being dependent upon our good and sovereign Lord and trust in him to help us. The third one is seeking spiritual strength from the Lord. Our helplessness becomes especially obvious during times of calamity. In God alone, do we need to find the strength to tread life's troubled waters. In the Psalms, we find a repository of prayers to God, many of them asking for help. For example, 
And I'll just share a couple of them. Consider the passages and notice the relationship between waiting on God and finding strength in God. In Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord in Psalm 27. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All of you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 31. And one of my favorites is our school motto, which in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The fourth thing we can do is refrain from needless worry and fear. Fear can be a helpful response to dangerous situations, but it can also be something that overwhelms us and takes our eyes off Christ. No matter our situation, however, scripture shows us that waiting on God involves being controlled by fear, or sorry, that avoid being controlled by fear and worry. And the remedy for that is God himself. Mm. And Jesus instructs us to avoid worrying about our lives because we have a heavenly father who can take care of us. We read this in Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? The fifth thing we can do is to learn and obey God's commandments. As we wait upon the Lord, we're to grow in knowledge of him and his commandments for us. And we're to diligently seek him and apply his law to our lives. And why? So that we might stay close to God, our Father, and avoid drifting into disobedience. Therefore, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's from 2 Peter and Psalm 40. The sixth thing is we can expect the Lord to save. Waiting upon God means expecting to act. And how does the Lord act towards those he set his eternal love upon? Savingly. Christ is our divine rescuer, our saviour and our deliverer. He rescues us from the wrath of God. He saves us from eternal condemnation and he delivers us from the bondage of Satan and our own sin. This is the nature of God, to save his people. The seventh one is to seek the Lord through constant prayer. As we've already been, as we've already, uh, as we've seen already, our waiting should not be one of inaction. Instead, we should be actively praying for the Lord to bring His deliverance. Remember, when the rest of the world is panicking, the church should be praying. And the final one is longing for Christ's return. This world and everything in it is slowly dying. With every turn of the earth on its axis, all of creation groans in agony under the weight of the curse of the fall. And those of us who have experienced spiritual redemption long for the redemption of our bodies when we'll actually behold with our own eyes Christ's glory in heaven. Until then, we eagerly wait. And from 2 Peter, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought ought you to be in lives of holiness 
and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of the heavens will be set fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a place being prepared for us, Jesus told his disciples in John 14. We simply need to wait until the day of the Lord returns to take us all there together to be with him. And what a glorious day that will be. We wait like a bride waiting with longing expectation for a wedding day. Christ, our sweet bridegroom, is coming and he has promised to make all things new. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your deliverance, for your sacrifice through your son, Jesus. We know, Lord, that as I as I shared, Lord, that there is a day coming where we will be judged, Lord, and that by believing in you and seeking you, that we can be part of that city of salvation, Lord. But we pray that as we wait, Lord, that it, it's not one of inaction, it's not one where we just sit back and just let things happen and say, oh, it's because God wills it and God's doing the work, Lord. No, help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to grow in you. Help us to wait on you. And as we wait for your return, Lord Jesus, whether it be now or whether it be in a thousand years' time, we pray that we can continue to grow closer to you. We pray that we continue to share with others, Lord, and that we can be your hands, feet, and mouthpiece. And we pray that all of our works, Lord Jesus, will not be accomplished because of us and in our own strength, but they will be through the work of Christ who works through us. So we pray as we continue to wait, Lord. We pray that we look forward and that we long and yearn and desire for your return. We pray that as part of the church here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. And if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour this morning on the live stream or whether it be part of this church uh, as we sit here in, in this building this morning, I encourage you to talk to one of the elders or to a friend or a family member who you know has accepted Jesus. All right. Thank you, everyone.